Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 2nd, 2020 episode. Um, if if you are a uh, big fan and subscriber, you'll notice that there is no episode for July 1st. And if you're a Canadian listener, you know that that's Canada Day. So um, it's weird because we Canada Day was on Wednesday and it's kind of weird to have a holiday in the middle of the week. Usually um, it gets put into a Monday or Friday. Regardless, I ended up taking the day off and spending time with my um, girlfriend's family. We kept it under a 10-person party, but still, it was a day of rest, so it didn't really do much in terms of learning, just family time. So that's why that episode is missing, but I'm back again, so I hope you are happy to have a new episode to listen to. Today's episode is going to talk about a book review called it's, it's about a book called Maverick by Ricardo Semler. Um, if you've been following my work for a while, you'd probably have an idea that this is probably one of my most favorite books. And honestly, um, this it's not a long book. It's only it's under I think three hundred pages, but it's it's a book that took me a really long time to just take notes on and review because. I mean, like my writing is just all over this book and I have so many thoughts here. I have so many takeaways. I end up taking me a very long time. I think before I started OMB Daily, I I, I experimented with a few other podcast series um, while I was running Accounted For, um, the predecessor to OMD Daily, because I had an idea of ha- running maybe two to three different podcasts at the same time. Crazy that I even thought about that. But uh, one idea was to just focus on book reviews only um and i attempted to do that with the this book maverick and i think i ended up talking for about two hours um just about this book and so i'm not going to do that today i'm going to try to really condense it and that was a really difficult thing for me to do back then i remember my voice, I was losing my voice because I'm just not used to talking for that long. And for some reason, I think, I think because I have to consider enunciating, like if you think I'm slurring my words right now, um, this is me trying really hard to be clear and clear in my delivery and be very articulate about it. So um, yeah, I think that also puts strain, a strain on my voice, just throat, etc. as well. So that's why I usually, I usually try to keep everything around 30 minutes and that's also because of a biological constraint i'm just not there yet in terms of speaking clearly for a long period of time so i think i don't know yet but i am gonna try i think i will probably split this review into two parts just because there's a lot of notes i have on this book um so i'll probably just there's 36 chapters in the book so i might just hit up the eight first 18 chapters in this episode and then the next episode i'll hit up the remaining 18 chapters just because of all the notes i have so to 
that's kind of enough of a backdrop on the story with me and this book. So the book is called Maverick. The tagline is the success story behind the world's most unusual workplace by Ricardo Semler, the, um, the CEO of the business. My one sentence summary of the book is, this is the story of an industrial conglomerate in Brazil with a late, sorry, I'll say it again. This is the story of an industrial conglomerate in Brazil with a leader using his uncommon sense to create an unconventional workplace that focuses on investing in quality of life for business success. And it was reviewed on July 2nd, 2020. And my rating on time of review is that I think this is probably the best business book. It's probably one of the few books I would ever give a 10 out of 10. Um, I think this is a book for me is for me, it'll be a book that I'll continue to study over and over again. Um, obviously, I could probably change my mind later on as I develop and get older um, and learn more. But for the time being, I think this is probably one of the best business books um, out there and def- definitely very underrated as well. So to start off, um, chapter one is called Natural Business. And if you're not familiar with this sto- with Ricardo Semler and his story, I highly recommend you watch his TED Talk. Um, you can just type in Ricardo Semler. Or I think he also has a few podcast interviews. Um, I think he has one of Tim Ferriss, I believe. But he has a few out there. And there's like a cult following um, called Semlerists who follow his view of um, company creation. But yeah, it's a Brazilian company. And the company itself is called Semco, um, based out, based on Semler's last name. But Semler was not, Ricardo was not the founder. It was his father who actually founded the company. And then Ricardo ended up taking it over. But the story itself is also very fascinating because he ends up completely overhauling his father's industrial company and changes it from kind of a struggling industrial company to something that actually completely exceeds all expectations. Um, So to begin with, I think the key thing... So chapter one kind of gives very concise overviews of what makes a company unique. Um, And the way I'd kind of describe it is it's a company where there's no unnecessary perks and privileges that feed the ego and hurt the balance sheet, which is really weird because um, in in essence, it's kind of, they they would be kind of more maybe even like anti-Google in some senses, like where you just cut all unnecessary perks and instead of giving perks, you just focus on giving people the best quality of life, which means that, because in one way you can say that Google has all these perks in their offices and all these like nice benefits because in one way, people, it's so they've created an environment that people don't want to leave, or sometimes they can't leave, as some of my Silicon Valley friends would say. Whereas if you create a company where no one actually has to be in the office if they don't need to be, um, where they actually come in because they want to and leave whenever they want, then you can actually limit the amount of perks and privileges um, that are kind of more, quote unquote, cheap. Um, and yeah, just they might just hurt the balance sheet and feed the ego. And what that also means is that it, ends up um, kind of not having any dead-end jobs inside the company and it really frees up the payroll because some people just are in it for the perks and the pay and you don't really want to have those people work for you. So then that also pushes people away. Um, What else is unique about the company that it shares? Yeah, so a big thing that you will um, learn as we talk deeper into Semco is that they continuously focus on cutting bureaucracy. I think um, in chapter one, it talks about how like 
Zemler is very proud of how they cut from 12 levels of bureaucracy to three levels. Um, and they focus on getting rid of any managerial position that only delegates and doesn't do anything else. Um, and Semco is like this designed, it's the design at Semco is for even the top managers to fetch guests, get their own photocopies, uh, dial their own phones. They don't even have like an executive din- executive dining room, which was pretty, I think, um, common at that at the time of the company. This is like in the nineteen, I think, nineteen eighties, nineteen seventies, when Ricardo took over for the company. And yeah, so considering the time period, then this was a very unique thing to incorporate into the culture of the company. Um, I think even the profit sharing approach was pretty unique. Like they had a very democratic approach where leaders negotiated with workers. Uh, so they were kind of the executive at the top and then just kind of associates at the bottom. Um, that was kind of the level title situation in Semco. So they also, I think, only limited, they only allowed four titles inside the company, which we'll, I'll probably get into in the second part where we actually go through the org structure uh, history. But at Semco, there was only... You could either be a counselor, partner, associate, or coordinator. Those are the only four titles that they ever used inside the company. Um, people were allowed to put whatever titles they wanted on their business cards, but that would not change pay. That would not change your duties or your roles at all, which was also pretty unique um, for them to incorporate. And like, we're in this kind of, I'm currently in this COVID time where working remotely is kind of becoming this thing, but this is like in the 1900s uh, or late 1900s where in this industrial company, um, Semco employees were encouraged to work from home whenever. And even Ricardo would at least take two months off every year just to travel and just have fun. And they ended up still becoming one of the most successful industrial companies in Brazil. So it kind of shows you that embracing remote work early would have worked pretty well <laughs> for many companies Um and it's a great thing. I think that this COVID situation is kind of creating that opportunity for co- companies to explore that further. But sorry, I was actually talking about the profit sharing. So for profit sharing, um, yeah, so leaders negotiated with workers and they agreed on like 25% of corporate profits to be distributed to all employees. Um, the distributions were decided by the workers themselves through various assemblies. So they would actually set up their own committees. It's kind of like these mini forms of government. And they decided amongst themselves that too big a raise at times would overextend the company, so they shouldn't. And what's amazing is that uh, this like actually happens when you let people be adults, regardless of hierarchy. Like the employees were the ones that said, "Yeah, like if we make the raise too high, then it can actually overextend the company, and people would lose jobs." Like the committees that they set up themselves decided all this, and then they brought it up to the leaders as suggestions of why. They wanted 25% of corporate profits. Like It's fascinating when you actually let adults be adults about it, right? Um, and it just seems like poor leaders only think about the downside of trust because most, I think, could see people deciding um, their own bo- bonus and profit sharing to get really short-term oriented and really greedy. But that's more like a perpetuating problem. Um, it's more like a problem that results when you actually believe that to be true. If you believe your employees won't be doing that, then the chances are they probably would kind of reciprocate um, that trust as well. Um, what else in chapter one was noteworthy? Oh, something else that was interesting is that, so this is an industrial company, so keep that in mind. 
Um, and so you could see a industrial company. So industrial company as in they make all kinds of things. Like they make hydraulics, they make widgets, they make um, all kinds of very complex, unique machinery that goes inside, you know, ships, all kinds of transportation. Um, they make like stoves, ovens, just anything tangible you see uh, in any facility, they kind of have a hand in it, any kind of mechanic, any kind of device. But the way it uh, worked in Semco was workers worked in teams to assemble a full product, not isolated components. So you'd actually think that, quote unquote, because of decentralization, uh, not decent, sorry, um, central, centralization and you want to have scale, you, you'd also kind of segment people off so that they just have this long assembly line where you have one team that only makes component A of, you know, this full reactor. And they only know how to make this one thing. But that was not the case in Semco. They actually tried to create teams where they wanted to foster control and responsibility. So then you would actually form a team where people would work together to assemble a full product. And then what actually happens is the team not only feels like they have more ownership in the whole process, but they actually feel more accountable for the entire thing too. So that's something that they learn. Um, that's also fascinating. And I think those are the kind of key things um, in chapter two. Like it kind of go over, goes over the high level, which will be discussed in detail later. So I'll refrain from sharing that. Um, hmm. So chapter three, now it goes into how the process of Ricardo taking over the business um, from his father and what Ricardo noticed was that there was this kind of 50-year gap between him and the incumbent executive, so his father's right-hand men, for example. And many were set in the ways and unwilling to change despite the deteriorating business and financial results. And so he, he called them to diversify the mental thought process by getting young blood and changing their ways. They didn't listen. Um, they didn't want to have new executives or new management. So... When Ricardo took over the business, he fired 60% of top management by 6 p.m. on day one. Um, he just, he knew that they wouldn't change his way. Like, um, he wasn't going to change the loyalty that they had to his father. And he wasn't going to change their unconscious bias against him and his own age. Because I think Ricardo took over the business, I think, in his um, mid to late 20s. So it was just better to get rid of the problem entirely. Um, because he wasn't going to change their minds. Um, and I think he knew that he you just can't willingly and forcibly change people's mind. And so it's better to work with people you are already aligned with. And I think that's a very important mental model to incorporate when you even think about hiring people or creating a team. Like you want people that already believe in something. You're not trying to change someone's mind. And so that's also a pretty fascinating story that the book goes into detail of, but it's just that steadfastness um, and something that's so unconventional. Like no one would think about firing the entire executive staff um, that, was already there, but sometimes it's just necessary to change the co company completely. And then in chapter five, um, I think a key point there is on Semco's kind of, uh, so Semco, because it's an industrial conglomerate, it not only grows from organic growth, it ends up growing through acquisition. So for me, the very similar model for Semco is Constellation Software, which is kind of a conglomerate of software companies. And so it has many different companies within it. And Semco kind of operates in a very similar fashion as you'll eventually learn um, if you end up reading the full book. And hopefully I'll shed some light on that through this discussion. But 
uh, chapter five kind of talked about Semco's requirements for acquiring a business, um, which I thought were pretty valuable, even just to get an idea of how they think about investing. So the three criteria were one, the company is number one or number two in its market. This reminds me of the the KitKat rule that Nestle used to have. Um, Nestle, I think, is something I learned from uh, my time in Moeller as an investor, where generally you want every business unit that um, is under the company to be a leader, number one or number two in any market that it plays in. Um, if it's number two, it has to be a contentious number two where it's kind of a uh, duopoly. If it's a number one, then you want it to be um, close to an oligopoly. And that's just a very important kind of rule to kind of keep in mind. And number two, uh, it was on sale for the right reason, i.e. no successor to the founder, ineffective management, parent company lost interest, all that. Because um, companies can go on sale for the wrong reasons too, where it's just a terrible business. And um, there's just a lot of skeletons hiding in it too. And number three, uh, no cash infusion required for the business. So you want it to be profitable. You want it to be something that's sustaining. Um, and I think these are just very important things to consider, even just as an investor. Like these are all factors I consider when I'm investing in the public market. So to realize that um, Semco as a business also thought about capital allocation in this manner, I think spoke very highly of the company and its management, um, even when setting this kind of uh, principle early on. And this is something that Ricardo talks about deeper in his kind of failures from his learning from making a lot of bad acquisitions. And chapter seven kind of continues on this acquisition thread. Um, and I'll just quote what he says. So upon acquisition, um, this is what Sem- Semco tends to do. Our first move was to reaffirm the philosophy born with our first acquisitions of not changing anything we didn't understand and giving the people already in place a chance before supplanting them with outsiders. It's so easy to blame the managers when a business does badly, but often they haven't had the freedom to manage or the motivation to perform as if the business were theirs. End quote. And so this is the, this, so you start seeing this shift um, in Ricardo Semler's mindset where he wants to instill this owner mentality to even the companies that he acquires. So he'll actually let the management team, um, the incumbent management team stay. So if there isn't, usually if, they, if you buy, like they might not have like a CEO or, you know, the higher level executives in place, but he'll actually let the incumbent, um, I guess, more mid-tier management team actually run the business and the business unit. And it reminds me heavily of um, how Constellation Software runs their acquisition strategy, where they actually want the incumbent uh, management team to lead the business. And you don't go in and try to change things yourself like an activist uh, investor might. And so this, I think, gives you a perspective, not only how they treat employees internally, but also people that they end up acquiring so you allow them to actually maintain the autonomy and actually think like owners and give them a chance to run a business a different way because yeah it might have just been that the ceo that previously ran the business never actually allowed people to think and act like owners uh, and then in chapter eight uh, the quote i'll read here is people are being pushed forward but how much better to have a self-propelled workforce and Uh, I'm going to take a break where he kind of describes that and then talk about a business parable he references. So this is a pretty popular parable, but um, I'll just kind of quote how he talks about the story. Three stone cutters were asked about their jobs. The first said he was paid to cut stones. The second replied that he used special techniques to shape stones in an exceptional way and proceeded to demonstrate his skill. 
The third stonecutter just smiled and said, I build, I build cathedrals. As I walked around Semco's plants, I had the sense we had far more stonecutters than craftsmen. What I wanted, of course, was a company will, with, filled with cathedra, cathedral builders, and there were hardly any of them at all. That was a pretty difficult quote to read. I don't know why. Uh, it's just the words. But anyhow, yeah, so you're continuously seeing this progression where some Semler is kind of walking you through um, how he's thinking about instilling ownership, how he's thinking about hiring and developing people who will think um, like the third stone cutter who builds cathedrals. So AKA kind of a mission oriented purpose driven person where he's not just focused on the task or just doing a job, but there's a reason why they're doing something. And it starts this kind of rehaul for organization within Sem uh, Semco as Ricardo continues. He like thinks about this uh, change that he wants to implement. And following on this thread, the next quote I want to read is, we simply do not believe our employees have an interest in coming in late, leaving early and doing as little as possible for as much money as our union can whittle out of us. After all, these same people raise children, join the PTA, elect mayors, governors, senators, and presidents. They are adults at Semco. We treat them like adults. We trust them. We don't make our employees ask permission to go to the bathroom or have security guards search them as they leave for the day. We get out of their way and let them do their jobs. And so this, I think, is once again an example of um, treating people like adults, like treating your employees like adults, where that's, it's such a cliche, but it's, you know, cliches are true in many ways. Um, and yeah, many employees don't, and many companies don't trust their employees. They don't treat them like adults. They want to make all the decisions for the people and they try to control everything. They don't trust their people. Whereas this is an indication where it sheds a light on how like, yeah, like outside of work, these adults do all these other things that um, dictate that the government trusts them, society trusts them, then why doesn't the company trust them, right? So it's once again, just using common sense as a way to kind of, I guess, um, for even Ricardo to think through the problem and go, hmm, yeah, like, we trust people outside of work. Why don't we do that inside the company, right? So in chapter nine, um, it goes deeper into this idea, his kind of more, I guess, development as a manager, um, as he thinks about time as a concept where he he believes like the fundamental problem with managing a business is the management of time. Um, there's like false beliefs, like effort and results are directly proportional um, or that quantity is better than quality. Like, you know, people choosing number of hours you work over the actual result that you create um, or like the fear of like fear of delegation, always believing there's more to do. And so this leads to like Ricardo stopping um, to even wear a watch because it's this mindset shift where he wants to think about running the company with the long-term mindset of years and decades instead of minutes. And uh, Semco actually ends up going one extreme and they go super intense about measuring every data point every like minute and trying to be hyper efficient uh and i think he references kind of this german model that they were incorporating and then they realized that um none of it like it actually ended up becoming very harmful for the company although it created these short-term benefits this excessive uh operational efficiency um, made them actually extremely short-term focused. And so they ended up actually completely overhauling that and changing their ways. Um, and then they think about, and 
Bukhara starts like implementing various um, strategies. Like he realized that dress codes are about conformity. So he gets rid of dress codes um, so that people can wear whatever they want because he doesn't want to have this culture of conformity. He redesigned, he redesigned offices. Um, it wasn't about having like an open concept like we have now, but um, Semco got rid of all the walls and just replaced walls with trees and like walls of trees and flowers. So uh, people still had boundaries, but then they didn't feel like they were in this confined space. He also let people choose where they sat. So people would actually move their desks to sit with whoever they wanted. So you weren't actually forced to sit with a team or people that you were working with by department. Like you could actually just sit with friends. And he realized, realized that, yeah, it doesn't matter if you sit with your friends or it's actually better because you actually want to come in because you're going to be hanging out with friends. And um, sure, like some, some managers might worry that, oh yeah, like then you're going to talk and you might not be productive. But that's once again, the managers that don't trust people. You actually let people make decisions themselves. And if they realize they're not focused, they will make the decision to move and switch. So it's the whole idea that the company implies that they know best when they try to control employees, but the reality is that they do not. Um, and you actually want people to create the environment that they want. So yeah, like it, the new office environment also was Ricardo's way of creating an environment where people's statuses no longer mattered. So, because you actually wouldn't have offices. I think Bucardo ended up eventually going from his big office where he moved to like this kind of weird janitor's closet um, where he just kind of keep his, I guess, like CEO files, but he ended up eventually not having an office either. Um, and so, yeah, it's completely eliminating any kind of symbol that tries to create uh, friction and levels of bureaucracy. Um, what else? I think I'll move over to chapter 11. Um, so in chapter 11, there are a few quotes I'll read. So one particular quote is, it's only when the bosses give up decision-making and let their employees govern themselves that the possibility exists for a business jointly managed by workers and executives. So the idea is that, yeah, you let all the employees make decisions themselves and you allow them to make mistakes because without mistakes, you don't learn. And no mistakes means you aren't taking any risks, hence no growth and positive change. You have to give ownership and autonomy this way. You have to allow your employees to uh, make decisions. And what actually happened is, um, so there's a couple of things in this chapter that I'll talk about. One is the Robin Hood meal plan. So Semco subsidized 70% of meals for everyone. Um, but em the employees thought this should be a sliding scale based on income, where managers and executives paid 95% of the total cost, while assembly line workers paid 5%. Um, some managers were outraged because they thought it was unfair, and they ended up bringing their own lunches from home instead of using the subsidized cafeteria. But over time, they realized that this was a better system for everyone a win-win situation and now and so the executives are the ones that um, defend the meal plan now because they understand the value for their lower wage colleagues and this is how when Semco allowed their employees to make first make suggestions and then make decisions they could actually create this whole collective community because it, it's, it's, it just seems like a no-brainer right where if you have all these high-paid managers and execs and yeah sure you have to still pay 95% of the total cost of a meal. But a meal is, by today's standards, what, like $10? And sure, you have to pay 9 instead of 
you have to pay uh yeah you have to pay nine dollars um because the company only gonna cover like one dollar like who cares you're making way more than the average assembly line worker for that assembly line worker that actually makes a huge difference because of their own status and their own situation but when you actually have leaders who actually understand that and are willing to acknowledge that yeah like we're all in this together we're running a company together and so giving that slack to um, the lower income employees and giving them the opportunity where this system actually works in their favor more because they need it more i think it's an a super important thing and this is a continuous theme that i'll probably talk about um where it's the constant focus of creating a win-win environment all the time and not creating a gap between executives and um the assembly line workers that are obviously the majority of semco's employee base the other program is um not program but uh i guess a policy is picking managers so the employee is actually end up picking the manager um instead of so they would end up picking whoever showed the greatest capacity to lead and that person got the job people the employees formed teams themselves based on um, natural propensity and strengths and the executive trust executives like trusted them and just let it all happen um, they gave workers ownership of changing processes and buying new equipment to improve production um, because they were the employees were the ones that like, vested in the operations and then uh, management let the employee workers like set their own like collective targets as a team and let them meet it um, because they were so vested in the factory the workers set higher targets than management ever would um, and they worked harder because they set their own targets and then they're actually learning um, to improve the processes further because they want to do better and hit their own goals and their own targets which is fascinating because um, sorry I, sh- I should have said this is more picking their own goals instead of picking their own like management style but yeah so this is a way where uh, managers actually i guess learn to take the hand off the steering wheel and let the employees decide letting them set their own goals and it's more fascinating i think especially because um similar continuity shows how this is working how it they were worried or they weren't sure, but it actually turned out even better, even more effective. I'm going to make a note in my notes as picking their own goals. And then um, what else? I realize I am kind of coming up on time. This is exactly what happened <laughs> the first time I tried to review the book. I ended up babbling on and talking so much about it um and I'm, my throat is definitely getting pretty tired but let's see uh so chapter 12 i think i think the points i want to talk about I'll, I'll talk about this particular i'll read this quote without rules all answers are suggested by common sense no i can't define what common sense is but i know it when i hear it some of our people stay in four-star hotels and others sometimes with much higher salaries choose less digs. Some people spend $200 a day on meals, others get by on half as much. The point is, if we can't trust a manager to use good judgment about such things, we sure as hell shouldn't be sending him off to do business in our name. It's just such a common sense approach. Uh, once again, you treat people like adults and you let people make decisions. You like 
the point of living and the point of what people are good at is just making judgments. Like life is all about making or having uh, making decisions and eventually developing a taste for good judgment, right? And this is just one particular example of trusting people and trusting that they will know what to do. Um, yeah, like there's like other examples where at Semco there was no rule about employees getting company cars. Um, they the company just trusted the employee to have like full responsibility and that they will treat everything right and do the right thing. Um, yeah, it just continues. This chapter twelve kind of also breaks through just how they just continuously kept on shredding rules and thinking of ways of eliminating things. So another quote that kind of leads into this is. The desire for rules and the need for innovation are, I believe, incompatible. End quote. Um, there's this idea that Semco talks about called order or progress. If you want to have order, then you will not have progress. But order is the idea of just having all these kinds of rules and layers of bureaucracy. And that stops innovation, which I feel like now everyone should know to be obvious. But once again, most companies still focus on establishing order, even like even when I talk to startups, they're so focused on establishing order because the CEOs are so afraid of people wasting money. So it's very counterintuitive, but at least my experience with talking to a lot of startups, um, at least in Canada, has been that many are foregoing innovating um, because they want to establish order. And that can come from the VCs or from the founders' own kind of fear over time. Oh, so moving on to chapter 13, um, this one I'm, I'm going to talk briefly about pay and how it was determined inside Semco. So pay was determined to be an average of what a worker thought he should receive and what the company could afford to pay. Semco asked his employees to go speak to their counterparts and competitors to assess comparable skills, responsibilities, and pay. And they used that figure to average out, um, use that to figure out the average uh, and pay above market to show they were investing in the best talent. So I think that the two things are one, you let uh, people kind of set their own pay, which in one way kind of seems crazy to think about. But this is, um, I'll, I'll go deeper into in the later segments because Semco continuously experiments with this system. But the first instruction is made in chapter 13, where they start thinking of, okay, well, what if people actually had to say on their own pay? What if they could suggest um, what they believe they should be getting paid. And they start off by comparing with industry standards and but always making a point to pay above market because that's how... It's like the minimum you should do to show that you care. And I think Clayton Christensen uh, in his book, How Will You Measure Your Life, has uh, I'm paraphrasing him, but has the idea that you will never be able to pay someone enough um, because... People always feel like they need to, they deserve more in some instances. I think in most instance, instances, like people are not never going to say no to more pay. But to actually pay above market um, after the employee's actually gone out and researched everything and knows what they their worth should be, that indicates a desire to invest in better talent. Uh, and I think that's a very crucial thing to incorporate because how can you say that you are focused on getting the best talent if you're not willing to pay above market, right? Just seems like a very simple idea. And I'll actually end up at chapter 14, just given the time. Um, and I'll try to be faster <laughs> when I actually record 
the rest from chapter 15 to chapter 36. Uh, so chapter 14, the idea is, the ideas I'll talk about, um, is the, so this is where I think the transition slowly goes into the focus on size. So the quote I'll read is, human nature demands recognition. Without it, people lose their sense of purpose and become dissatisfied, restless, and unproductive. Yes. So this is a focus on the, I guess the core focus on like the singular individual. And in this chapter, Sem- Sem- Semler talks about how like, um, as a company gets grow- bigger and more complex, um, more complications get factored in. And so then the focus has to be to continue to try to whittle things down. Once again, Dunbar's law of 150, where you, if you have, um, I think Dunbar said that we as individuals are only able to kind of keep track of the 150 people in our lives. Anything past that, um, we just can't. And Sem, Semler con, uh, continues to kind of wrestles with this as Semco gets bigger and it starts having more employees. And so in one quote, he says, in a small factory, it is possible to know everyone by their first name, to debate plans and strategies, to feel involved, to belong. It's, it's I think, where he's now slowly shifting his mind to realizing that small is robust. Um, economies of scale, when it's improperly deployed, can get in the way. And the idea is that not all economies of scale are equally good. And so this is kind of the pivot that starts happening in Semler's mind um, as he starts thinking about focusing on creating small business units. Um, Maybe I should talk about okay, Alec, because it's because we're focused on this idea and it gets further expanded in chapter fifteen. I'll talk about, I'll go up to chapter fifteen. Um, yeah, I think that's what I'll probably do. So, in chapter fifteen, um, I talked about the Dunbar Dunbar's law of one fifty, and so the this chapter kind of goes into the question of when is a company too big and. I'll quote uh, Ricardo when he says, people will perform at their potential only when they know almost everyone around them, which is generally when they are no more than 150 people. This is our experience anyway, end quote. And when this is the 150, I believe he's referencing Dunbar's law. I don't think he specifically says it, but that's the idea. And so they, in this one particular uh, plant, um, that they, the manufacturing plant called, uh, I think, Iparang, Iparanga, I think it's the pronunciation. But they end up splitting the plant when it had 200 employees. So they split it up so there'd be two separate units. Um, and so then people would continue to be able to work with, you know, being the small business unit, this small tribe. Um, and so when it's 100 people, it's much more manageable. And everyone kind of knows each other compared to when it's at 200. So kind of splitting things off before it gets too big and too hard. And I'll, I think that's kind of where... I'll leave it off. So that's it for today's episode. Um, I hope this was somewhat interesting, somewhat intriguing. Like this is one of my favorite books, and it's kind of, it's kind of hard for me because uh, I feel like there's everything about the book is important, but I'm trying to pick up the important things um, to keep you somewhat engaged and only kind of share like the high level highlights. But yeah, I I. Um, I published the full book review note as always, um, as you are aware, if you've heard my other book, book reviews before. So you can also have access to the full um, gambit of everything um, ahead of time so you don't have to wait for the next episode. But yeah, if you want to wait, then 
yeah, please, uh, you don't have to wait long for it. Uh, it'll be the, the coming next episode. But if you also want to read further into all of the kind of notes I've taken, um, where I have more specific examples of what STEM code incorporated, what they've done, and just more of my thoughts. There's a lot of kind of me thinking as well um, in the book notes. So yeah, check it out at omdventures.com. And once again, thanks for paying attention and listening in and giving me your attention. I appreciate it. So take care and I'll looking I'll look forward to have you come and listen I guess to the next episode. Okay, bye.